Well, good morning. Good to see you this morning. Let's try that again. You can do better than that. Let's, okay. Good morning. Good morning. Great to see you this morning, and uh, so good to be back with you here at this church. It sounds like things are going well, and the Lord's blessing you as you kind of pull out of COVID and move into the neighborhood, and I see new faces here, so it's, it's wonderful to see you this morning. Uh, we want to start this morning with uh, the reading of God's Word from Matthew chapter 21, verses 12 through 22. Matthew 21 verses 12 through 22. And I'm going to be reading from uh, the CSB translation. That may be a little bit different from yours, but you can kind of follow along in your translation. Would you please stand with me for a moment as we read God's Word together? Jesus went into the temple, and throughout all those buying and selling, he overturned the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. He said to them, It is written, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of thieves. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. And when the chief priest and the scribes saw the wonders that he did, and the children shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these children are saying? Jesus replied, yes, have you never read? You have prepared praise from the mouths of infants and nursing babies. Then he left them and went out of the city to Bethany and spent the night there. Early in the morning as he was returning to the city, he was hungry and seeing a lone fig tree by the road, he went up to it and found nothing on it except leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And at once the fig tree withered. And when the disciples saw it, they were amazed. And they said, how did the fig tree wither so quickly? And Jesus answered them, truly I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you tell this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea, it will be done. And if you believe, you will receive whatever you ask in prayer. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Back a number of years ago, my wife and I uh, were in Wales, and we had actually gone there for a brief holiday and had worked our way from uh, the top of Wales all the way down to what is called the Gower Peninsula, which you see here on your screen. And I want you just to interpret the picture that you see there just for a minute. Would you do that? If you had to write out what you think you're seeing, how would you describe that? Um, happy couple in a beautiful place. Something like that? Does that kind of come, come across? Well, uh, there's actually a tremendous incongruity behind this moment in our lives. Uh, we had just had one of the worst fights in our marriage. We were not happy. In fact, in fact right before this picture, Pat had been crying. <laughs> And I was so mad, I was, I was just spitting mad. And I'm not going to tell you what was going on or what the problem was. 
right? Um, and it, it actually was one of the, the most important moments in the last, I would say, 10 years of our marriage. God dealt with us and taught us some things there uh, that were really, really significant. He was kind of just um, uncovering some deeper issues that we needed to process that would make us even healthier. Now, we have a wonderful marriage and, and are best friends and love each other, but this was an incongruous moment. It, you had the beautiful surroundings, and yet you had a really difficult kind of conf confrontation take place in this moment. Now, when we come to our passage for today, these intertwined stories of the temple and the tree in Matthew 21, we also come to a moment that feels very incongruous. Uh, Easter is one of the great seasons of the year. It's one of our two most celebrated moments in the Christian calendar. We think about the forgiveness of our sins because of Jesus dying for us on the cross. We think about the glory of the resurrection and the hope of resurrection life. And yet, in Matthew 21, we come to this kind of strange moment, these stark pictures of judgment, where Jesus comes to the most important site in all of Judaism in the ancient world and actually starts being violent. He turns over tables. He drives people out of the temple with a whip. And then as you keep reading in the passage, we find the only miracle of Jesus that was destructive in our Gospels. And I've actually uh, read even scholars saying, you know, why did Jesus take this out on this poor tree <laughs> that was just not bearing fruit? It wasn't even the season for figs, we're told in the broader gospel message. So what was Jesus doing? How do we make sense of this passage, and how are we to respond to it as we come to Easter? Well, I want to give you three points this morning as we kind of walk our way through and unpack the passage. First of all, that Easter brings judgment on the religious leaders by God. Secondly, that Easter brings healing through the presence of God. And third, Easter prompts prayer in the true house of God. So let's take a look at uh, these points one at a time as we kind of work our way through here. First of all, verses 12 and 13, that Easter brings the judgment on the religious leaders by God. Jesus went into the temple and he threw out all those buying and selling. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of thieves. Well, the temple of Jesus' day was the center of the world for the Jews, as I mentioned just a moment ago. There was one Jewish commentary that said this, the land of Israel is the navel of the world. And Jerusalem is its center, and the temple is at the center of Jerusalem, and the Holy of Holies is at its center, and the Holy Ark is at the center of the Holy of Holies. 
And in front of it is the foundation stone on which the world was founded. Now, by the time of Jesus, the ark was no more. The ark was gone. And when they would come and the priests would do the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, what they did is they did it there on the foundation stone that was in the Holy of Holies. But this was seen as the very center point of the whole world. And the temple was a source of pride for people. There are stories about people kind of walking up to Jerusalem and the sun shining off the gold on the top of the temple and them talking about the glory of that place. It was a tremendous architectural feat. What had happened was that the old temple, the second temple that was built after the Babylonian exile, was built up on Zion, on the Temple Mount. And there were two valleys right on either side of that small little mountain. And what Herod the Great did is he, he brought dirt in and literally filled in the valleys on either side of that little mountain and built it up using a retaining wall system. So if you've ever seen a picture of what we call the Wailing Wall, have you seen that before with Jews standing there and they're, they're doing prayers and putting prayers into the cracks of that wall? What that actually is, is a giant retaining wall that was built by Herod that was so precisely engineered that from one end of that wall to the other, it only varies by about a quarter of an inch. It's amazing architectural feat. And so you had this massive public space created that was about 450 meters by 275 meters. It was the largest public space in the ancient world. And the Jews were very, very proud of it. It was the key to their practice of religion. That's where all of the festivals came and focused. It was the key to their judicial center. That's where the Sanhedrin met in buildings that ran alongside of the temple complex. And it was the economic center for Jerusalem. There were no natural resources around Jerusalem. It was an economy that was driven by the ongoing rotation of the priests who came into the city, about 700 a week. And those festivals, as they came in and transformed the city, and the city would go from somewhere between 50 and 100,000 people to about double that during festival times. And so you can imagine having Mardi Gras three times a year in New Orleans and what that would do for your economy. Well, that's, that's the way that, that Jerusalem worked in terms of its economy. And at the center of all of it was the temple itself. The temple that Jesus marches into when he comes to Jerusalem. As an outsider who was from the north up in Galilee. And he pronounces judgment and very boldly begins driving people out of the temple. In standing and giving a sermon in which he pronounces, in essence, the leaders of this temple complex, who we know as the chief priests in the New Testament, he announces that they are corrupt. 
And you remember that in one of the narratives as it unfolds, Jesus actually says in John's gospel, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. Now, can you imagine? It would be like someone going to the parliament building and walking up and down outside the parliament building and saying, blow it up, blow it up. Can you imagine that happening today? In essence, that would have been the emotional vibe that people would have gotten when Jesus stood and gave his sermon. The Messiah was actually expected to come and put things right in the temple based on Malachi 3. In that passage, if you go back and you look at the first few verses of Malachi 3, we read from the prophet, See, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me, and then the Lord you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant you delight in, See, he is coming, says the Lord of armies, but who can endure the day of his coming? And who will be able to stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire and like a launderer's bleach, and he will be like a refiner and a purifier of silver who will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And so David's son, Jesus, comes to the temple not as the military Messiah that a lot of people were hoping for, but as a Malachi Messiah who has come to transform the temple in some way. And he says as he stands and preaches his sermon, my house will be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. Now what Jesus does in that sermon is he actually is bringing together two Old Testament passages. The first is from Isaiah chapter 56, which we'll look at a little bit later which kind of culminates with him talking about the purpose of the temple as being the place where all the nations would flow in to experience this face-to-face -face worship with God and of God. And the other passage that's brought together with Isaiah 56 is really the backdrop for what Jesus is doing with casting people out of the temple that passage is from Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 35 and following, or three, really verses 3 and following. So you have this action that Jesus is doing that brings together the dynamic of casting people out. So here's the backdrop. Right before the Babylonian exile took place, Jeremiah was told by God to go stand in the gate at the temple and to preach a sermon. And we have the content of that sermon in Jeremiah chapters 7, and it kind of goes into chapter 8 as well. Listen to the first part of that sermon. Really, it's after the first few verses. But this is what Jeremiah said in that sermon, and notice the theme of casting out. Now, what Jeremiah is doing is he's warning the people of his day that because the leaders of Jerusalem were corrupt, there was coming a time when God was going to bring judgment 
on the city, and it would be no good for the leaders to say, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, basically saying, look, because we've got the temple and the presence of God is among us, nothing bad can happen to us. And Jeremiah said, don't believe that. Because you are corrupt, what actually is going to happen is the Babylonians are going to come in here, they are going to destroy this place, and I am going to cast you out of the land, and you are going to be exiles. And that's what happened for about 70 years, is they became exiles. Look at this passage from Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 11 and following. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers? That's the allusion that Jesus makes to this passage. In your eyes, behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Go now in my place, go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name to dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. He's talking about the northern kingdom that was destroyed by the Assyrians. And now, because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, and when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen. And when I called you, you did not answer. And therefore, I will do to the house that is called by my name, and which you trust, and to the place that I gave to you and to your fathers, as I did to Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight... As I cast out all of your kinsmen, all of the offspring of Israel. Now, what he's saying then is that the dynamic that happened with the exile when Jeremiah was a prophet, this is going to happen again, Jesus says, by acting out the drama of a new exile, of casting people out of the temple. If you remember from the Old Testament, prophets at times would act out what God was about to do. Jeremiah himself did that on a number of occasions. And what Jesus is doing is he is foretelling a redo or a redoing of the Babylonian exile that will happen to the leaders of his day and to the, the temple of his day because those leaders did not recognize the time of the Messiah's visitation or coming. Now we know that that happened in AD 70 when the Romans came in. They destroyed the city of Jerusalem. The city was actually reduced by about two-thirds of its population. About 100,000 Jews were scattered over the Mediterranean world. Some of them taken as slaves to Rome and they built the Colosseum in Rome, for instance the slaves that came out of that war. And so Jesus is heralding judgment as he is casting people out of the temple. It's a picture of what is coming. Now, when we think about Easter, we know that Easter, in one sense, is a herald of judgment. Judgment on sin. When we see Jesus there on the cross, crucified on what we call Good Friday, it shows how seriously God takes sin and the lengths to which he was willing to go to deal with our sin, to bring us back into 
face-to-face relationship with himself. We know that Easter is judgment on death. As Jesus rose from the dead and conquered death, he declared it done. And it's true that death still walks around the world as an enemy today because there's this lovely time between the cross and the second coming in which evil people like you and me can still become brothers and sisters in the house of God. And so we know that death is defeated and that when we come to the end of the age, we will be raised with Christ in our resurrection bodies and death and sorrow will be no more. And so Easter is a time of judgment. And maybe for us, it can be a time of us evaluating, especially during this time of Lent, coming before the Lord and opening our lives up to Him and saying, Lord, are there areas that you need to put your finger on in my life that I need to repent of to move back toward you in my relationship with you? Easter brings judgment on the religious leaders of Jesus' day, but it also brings a lovely kind of judgment to us that turns our faces back to the Lord and opens us up to Him. All right, a second thing then, catch up with my slides here. Secondly, Easter brings healing through the presence of God. It brings healing through the presence of God. Look at verses 14 through 17. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. And when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonders that he did and the children shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus replied, yes. Have you never read You have prepared praise from the mouths of infants and nursing babies. Then he left them, went out of the city to Bethany, and spent the night there. Now here Jesus is in the temple complex, probably out in what is called the court of the Gentiles. It was the outer area of the temple. It was a public space, very large public space. And what is happening is people are gathering to Jesus. They've heard about him. They've heard about the miracles that he did in Galilee. And they're bringing people. If you've seen um, the uh, show that has been on The Chosen, have you seen that? It's very powerful when you see the healing scenes, isn't it? Because it, it graphically displays how People's lives are transformed, and people are really in a rush to go find others and find their friends and bring them and get them to the place where they can be healed as well. Well, that is taking place. As Jesus is now there in Jerusalem, people are coming together at the festival and saying, this is our opportunity. And so he is healing the blind and the lame. And it's bringing about all kinds of responses. How many of you have friends or relatives right now who need healing? Anybody here? Uh, We have heard, even in the past month or so, about three different friends who have cancer. And there's an urgency 
in our prayers for Martha and for Sally and for John, who has prostate cancer. We long for the world to be put right, don't we? I tell my students more and more as I get older, I'm longing for the resurrection body. I've just started experiencing some tinnitus this past week, and I'm kind of like, another thing is kind of breaking down just a little bit. We long for things to be put right. And what is happening as Jesus is healing people, and even later in the church as people are being healed, is we're seeing evidence of God putting things in motion in the world that literally will issue into new heavens and new earth. It's a foretaste in these healings that these bodies are not going to be breaking down and decaying forever. As Paul said, the mortal must put on immortality. There's coming a better day in terms of these physical bodies. Christ is going to put things right in the world. And it is amazing in light of what is happening in the narrative when we see the response of the religious leaders. Because they are reacting not in terms of the power of Christ to transform people's lives. They're reacting in terms of their threat to their own power. When the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. That term in the Greek text means that they were stirred up with anger. They were aroused. It affected them in a negative way. They saw the wonderful things. That term can be translated as remarkable, amazing, admirable things. And yet they did not respond with wonder and admiration. They responded in a way that was spiritually broken. They asked Jesus, do you hear what these children are saying? Because they were praising him. And Jesus says, yes. Haven't you read the scriptures? And he points to Psalm 8, which is a passage that is a messianic psalm of that time. People of the day, one of the passages that they pointed to when they talked about the coming of Messiah was the broader text of Psalm 8. And this is what the first part of that passage says. Lord, our Lord. How magnificent is your name throughout the earth. You have covered the heavens with your majesty. From the mouths of infants and nursing babes or babies, you have established a stronghold. That passage or that, that term means something that is powerful or mighty, even fierce. And you've done this on account of your adversaries in order to silence the enemy and the avenger. Praise is something that is powerful in the world. And Jesus says, as praise is coming out of the mouths of these kids, it is a power that speaks against the adversaries. It actually is addressing the religious leaders. 
because these kids are discerning the identity of Jesus in a way that they are not. Notice it is the Lord, Yahweh, who is being praised in this passage. And Jesus, as God's Son, has stepped into the world and is putting things in motion that bring about reactions. It's a natural response to healing, to praise, to praise, to thank God. A number of years ago, I was in China. I had gone, this was my first experience of going to mainland China back in 2005, I believe it was. And a few months before, Pat had actually had hyperthyroidism. And she had gone through the radiation treatments that nuked her thyroid. And her, if you know about that procedure, what happens is then the thyroid takes its time to die. It dies over a period of time and suddenly it dies. And then you have to have a replacement of those hormones through medication. And so Pat had had hyperthyroidism. She had gone through the procedure of having her thyroid radiated. And I was over the other side of the world in China. And the group that I was teaching that week were a group of people from the western part of China. And I called Pat, I think it was on a Tuesday night, and she said, George, I really need prayer. She said, I think that my thyroid has died completely. I feel horrible physically. But also, surrounding this whole trip... I have felt such a dark, dark cloud of oppression. I mean, just, she said, it's like this thick black cloud is just resting on my life, and I just can't get away from it. Would you just ask the brothers and sisters to pray? And I went in the next morning and did what we would do as we go into a Bible study at times. I just said, would you folks please pray for Pat? I said, she is, she is not doing well. And I explained to them the situation. And without anybody in the room saying anything, all of them just immediately stood up. And one after another, they went around the room praying these powerful, urgent prayers. And the translator leaned over to me and said, it's almost pure scripture what they're praying. And so they prayed for about 35 or 40 minutes. And then they sat down, and we went on with the session for the day. And do you know that within 24 hours, all of that sense of physical oppression and all of the darkness spiritually just lifted off of Pat? There were also people in the room who had been healed from being paralyzed from the waist down. There was one brother who was there who had had an aggressive form of malignant cancer for seven years. The doctors had told him seven years before he had three months to live. God was working powerfully in that group. And when we experience something like that, you feel the presence and the movement of God in very tangible ways. And that, what, that is what was happening here. So not only does Easter bring about judgment on the religious leaders, but it brings about healing through the presence of God. And that's a healing that you and I can experience at Easter this year as well. It may be physical healing, and we should call out to God and ask for healing. It's very appropriate for our leaders to pray for people to be healed. 
But it may be that some of you need to be healed in your relationships with other people. Maybe some of you are here who even need to be healed in your relationship with God himself. And the people you've seen up front here would be glad to talk to you about how you can experience that. It would be a great time of the year to be healed in your relationship with the Lord. But then the final thing here is that Easter prompts prayer in the true house of God. And just briefly, let me kind of wrap up with this. Look at verses 18 through 22. Early in the morning, as Jesus was on his way back to the city, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it, but found nothing on it except leaves. And then he said to it, may you never bear fruit again. And immediately the tree withered. And when the disciples saw this, they were amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly, they asked. And Jesus replied, truly, I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but also you can say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask in prayer. Now, there are two things going on in this last movement of Matthew's story of how he tells the story. First of all, this too, in the withering of the fig tree, is a dramatic act of judgment that's kind of mirroring, in some ways, Jesus' action in the temple. The fig tree was a symbol of the nation of Israel. And the religion of the temple, because of the corruption of the leaders, had failed to bear appropriate fruit. The people had not been obedient to God. And this image is also found in Jeremiah's temple sermon, where we, where we see a withered fig tree. This is what Jeremiah 7.20 says. Therefore, this is what the Lord God says. Look, my anger, my burning wrath is about to be poured out on this place, on people and animals, on the tree of the field, and on the produce of the land. My wrath will burn and not be quenched. And then in chapter 8, verse 13, we read, God says, I will gather them and bring them to an end. This is the Lord's declaration. There will be no grapes on the vine, no figs on the fig tree. And even the leaf will wither. Whatever I have given them will be lost to them. And so what Jesus is doing again as a dramatic prophet, he is acting out something that is a prophetic word about what would happen to the temple and Jerusalem in the decades to come. He's acting out this judgment. It's an echo of the coming destruction of A.D. 70. But there's a second thing that he's doing here. And that is Jesus is pointing beyond the temple that is right there in front of him in Jerusalem to a new temple. That he's building. And it's not a temple that would be stationary in Jerusalem. 
so that you and I would have to go all the way around the world to be at the place where God especially touches earth. But it's a temple that's right here this morning. It's a temple that actually walks throughout the earth in places like Vancouver and Dallas and Sao Paulo, Paris, Singapore, Hong Kong, Qingdao, in the Ukraine. Jesus was building a new house of prayer. Notice that what happens is the disciples respond to the fig tree incident and Matthew actually culminates it with Jesus giving them a lesson on prayer, picking back up the reference to prayer back up at the beginning of the passage, my house will be called a house of prayer. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask in prayer. The destruction of the temple is ultimately going to lead to a new temple. And again, you have that passage from Isaiah 56, verses 1 through 7. Let me just read that to you. In Isaiah 56, verses 1 through 7, you have the other side of what Jesus is doing. Jeremiah gives us the judgment and destruction side. Listen to the beauty of what Christ is building positively about the place where people would be ingathered to the Lord. This is what the Lord says, preserve justice and do what is right. This is Isaiah 56, 1 and following. For my salvation is coming soon. And my righteousness will be revealed. Happy is the person who does this, the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it and keeps his hand from doing evil. No foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord should say, the Lord will exclude me from his people. And the eunuch, who normally would not be able to go into the temple, should not say, look, I am a withered tree. For the Lord says this, for the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath and choose what pleases me and hold firmly to my covenant, I will give them in my house and within my walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give each of them an everlasting name that will not be cut off. As for the foreigners, that's us, who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord. And to become his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold firmly to my covenant, I will bring them to my holy mountain and let them rejoice in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. This is the declaration of the Lord God who gathers the dispersed of Israel. Folks, you and I are right there in that promise. Our gathering this morning as the place where God lives is a fulfillment of this. And in an ironic way, it's a fulfillment of what Jesus was doing in cursing the fig tree. <laughs> As we come to Easter this year then, we come to a place where we can enter into the very presence of God. 
where we can draw near to him in prayer and talk to him intimately about the things that are going on in our lives. We can participate with him in what he is doing in this neighborhood through the power of prayer to the living God of the universe who cares about us and our needs and the needs of those people all around us. Easter is a tremendous time of celebration because it means that you and I can draw near to God knowing the grace of judgment, the grace of healing, and the grace of prayer. Let's have a closing word of prayer together, and then Wes will come back and lead us from here. Father, we thank you very much for your mercy, the power, the power of your word and what it has done to communicate with us about what you're doing in the world and in our lives. And Lord, we are so grateful that there is a, is a confrontation that we find in this passage that ultimately doesn't just lead to the dismantling of a house. It leads to the building of a universal house. And we pray, oh God, that as we live into Easter this year, we will live that reality as we interface with those around us and with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.